0: You desire to attend Bible college or seminary, but know that it would be incredibly difficult to uproot your family and move somewhere. Maybe you desire to attend seminary, but you don't want to leave your local congregation. Let me tell you about my seminary, Whitfield Theological Seminary. Whitfield is a conservative, confessional, classical Reformed seminary who wants to come alongside congregations and assist them in raising up a pastor. The training of a minister should be done alongside of a congregation. Whitfield offers online classes so that you can fulfill your calling without having to move your family or abandon your church. Go check them out at www.reformed.info. That is www.reformed.info. Tell them you heard about them on The Daily Brew. We at The Daily Brew take the Bible and the study of it very seriously. Have you ever wondered where we or our special guests go when we want to dive into God's Word more deeply? We go to Logos, the best Bible software available. From in-depth word studies in the original languages to commentaries from scholars both new and old, there are lexicons and grammars and sermons and collected works of heroes of the faith, and even ancient texts for the serious Bible students. Never before has so many great tools been bundled together into one software. To learn more about this incredible ministry, call 888-390-7341. That's 888-390-7341. While you're there, go ahead and tell them that you heard about this incredible software on The Daily Brew. Listen up daily, Brew, subscribers, and listeners. I want to tell you about our newest partner, Audio Blocks and Video Blocks. They're an incredible resource if you're looking for background footage, background audio. We use them for all our video and audio uh, needs. If you're needing background clips, if you're needing short footage for any video that you're making for your business or your church, or just looking for background noises for putting something together, they have everything you need, a huge selection. You have to go check them out. Go check them out at Audioblocks.com or Videoblocks.com. Are you looking for something fun to do on these hot summer days? Are you looking for something fun for the whole family? Go check out Ripley's Aquarium in the Smokies. This has been rated the number one aquarium in the country. If you're looking to waddle with the penguins or sleep with the sharks, this is the place for you. For an up close view, check out the glass bottom boat. Ripley's Aquarium in the Smokies has something for the whole family. More information to ripleyaquariums.com.
1: You are busy, you are always on the go, but are you making time for you? The Y is dedicated to helping you stay active, live better, and find the best possible version of you. From basketball courts to functional training space, indoor pools, and yoga studios, the best of Knoxville is right in your backyard. Group classes and personal trainers that will challenge and encourage you. The Y has something for everyone. Join the Y and get unlimited access to all five locations, from the heart of downtown Knoxville to Farragut and Halls, all with no contracts, for a better rest.
0: This is The Daily Brew. We are here with Adam Lates. He is a professor of history at Binghamton University. He's also written several books. Uh, His most recent book, which is uh, gaining a lot of attention, is a book called Fundamentalist You. Uh, Adam, thank you uh, so much for taking the time to join the show.
1: It's my pleasure, my pleasure. I should uh, uh, say it's lots, uh, like parking. Lots. Oh, thank you very much. Sorry for the, the confusion there. Um, no problem. There's not a lot of Estonians around, so it <laughs> a bit hard to pronounce.
0: We'll go ahead and get this started then. So, in your newest book, Fundamentalists, you discuss how fundamentalism, um, whether it be college, seminary, on the academic level, even public schools, um, how it influenced culture... Um, and influence culture, morals, everything of that nature. Can you explain kind of what motivated you and uh, what made you want to write this book and why it's so important?
1: Uh, sure, sure. Uh, my, my doctoral dissertation looked uh, specifically at 1920s, um, which is, you know, in America where the, the fundamentalist movement uh, first came together. And I looked in my dissertation at um, – I was focusing on K-12 movements um, – I, I didn't come at this from an evangelical perspective. I, I'm not evangelical. This isn't my tradition at all. But what I was interested in, I was looking for um, successful, influential reform movements in education. And the fundamentalist movement in the 1920s was, uh, by any definition, one of the most influential, um, non-public uh, attempts to, to change the way schooling worked at the K-12 level. Um, at public schooling, too, I should say. During that research into K-12 schools, I kept seeing again and again that actually most of the K-12 um, school thinking and, and uh, reasoning and argumentation, it actually came out of and was, was not just influenced by but directed by higher ed questions. And looking back, it seems obvious, but at the time, it seemed like a revelation to me that the real story of this educational movement, this religious movement, uh, at the educational level, was more a story of higher ed than of K-12. The K-12 stuff followed um, and was directed in large part by the higher ed movement. So for years, Hmm. I've been um, interested in, in higher ed particularly, and uh, these days, um, you know, the last few years, I've had the chance to delve into the story and to expand it, obviously, um, out, out of the 1920s into the whole sort of short 20th century.
0: That is a good segue into my second question, actually. So um, we brought this up at the very beginning of the interview. Um, you talk about in Fundamentalist You how uh, fundamentalism early on and, and throughout its. Uh, Uh, prime years, if you want to think of it that way. It spoke into politics, it spoke into culture, to morals, education. Uh, really even influenced uh, presidential races, if you wanna think of it that way, and it spoke into those. So my question to you, and the second question I wanna bring up is, do you think with, uh, as fundamentalism seems to be slowly declining in our culture um, and and popularity, it's not as popular as it once was, do you think with a decline of fundamentalism, it'll still be able to speak, or does it still speak and have the influence that it once had upon the culture?
1: Well, gosh, I I think the the fundamentalist label uh, is certainly um, in decline. People don't like to use it. Uh, People don't like to have it applied to themselves. And that that was true in the 1920s, beginning in the 1920s as well, but it certainly seems like these days um, the label itself um, has become something that a lot of intellectuals in particular prefer not to use, especially when there's, uh, you know, terms available, you know, Bible Christian, or just, you know, Bible believer, things like that. But the label and the the sort of what went into the label, I think, are two different things we need to separate. When we look at institutions that have more or less um, remained uh, true and constant to what animated fundamentalists in the 1920s and 1950s, back when they called themselves fundamentalists uh, more proudly... Uh, those institutions especially in higher ed are not um, losing emphasis at all uh, the most you know the most obvious example that everyone brings up um, and the journalists ask about the most is uh, these days is Liberty University in Virginia hmm. uh, again it tends not to want to call itself fundamentalist and certainly some of its um, institutional practices have changed since the 70s but in terms of what it Promises um, for its students, both theologically and in terms of behavior and in terms of what the university is meant to do. Uh, The university is still meant to do something different than what secular or mainstream or mainline schools promise to do. It still wants to shape students' religiosity, not just in general, but in specific ways, uh, ways that I think by any uh, measure would still be aligned to what the 1920s folks called the fundamentals of the faith. So is uh, fundamentalist as a label certainly seems to be once again having a periodic um, uh, sort of self-examination moment, and and this time I think it's different compared to the 1950s or the 1920s. This time it does seem as if um, institutions and academics and intellectuals are going to move away from that term to describe themselves. But in terms of um, the goals that were called fundamentalism in earlier generations, the institutional goals, I think those are very strong, um, and in some places getting stronger. You know, you can look at schools like Bryan College uh, near you, and they have tightened uh, their faculty um, belief requirements, uh, not loosened them. So. I think it is certainly alive and well. Uh, I don't know what we would call it. I don't want to call it the fundamentalist impulse anymore because that would be um, you know disrespectful to what people want to call themselves uh, but if we, you know whatever we want to call it, sort of conservative evangelical higher education, uh, I think that is certainly strong, uh, maybe st- as strong as it's ever been.
0: Mm. My next question I want to ask you um, is in your book, you discuss how many of these fundamental schools have changed uh, or have left the traditions, which they initially started off with, or many of the traditions, uh, they may have changed, I'm not really sure what word you'd want to use there, um, from their original upbringing. Do you find, uh, so my question is, do you think that, uh, or do you find, I'm not even sure if your, your field of study is in this area as well, or if you um, have read into this at all, but do you think that... You see these same changes of tradition in confessional schools, maybe like Westminster Confession. I'm sorry, Westminster Theological Seminary, which holds to the Westminster Confession, or maybe maybe a school like uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary that holds to the abstract Principles. Do you think, or do you see the same uh, the same trend of schools abandoning some of their earlier traditions? Um, like you, you mentioned, of fundamentalism abandoning many of its earlier traditions. Do you find that confessional schools have the same abandonment? Does that make sense?
1: Uh, uh, definitely, I think the, the the key trick to understanding the schools that I'm studying is to recognize that they were founded on this inherently slippery ideal, which is to um, support an interdenominational evangelical orthodoxy when there really isn't, uh, you know, there is no s- single agreed upon um, theological orthodoxy that these schools. Uh, could agree on. They wanted, they insisted on remaining interdenominational. And so unlike confessional schools, and again, there's a huge diversity among confessional schools, but unlike confessional schools, the interdenominational schools that I studied, that I focused on, are in this um, really difficult situation of always sort of um, having to balance both an intellectual Uh, a satisfyingly intellectual um, uh, sort of promise of conservative orthodoxy with a popular evangelical sense of what should be included. So let me just give one example that I think is my favorite from the book, favorite in terms of clarifying how this tension could play out. Um, In the 30s, when um, Westminster was new, um, when J. Gresham Machen had just uh, broken away from... um, Princeton and his own seminary, the rumor went about through, you know, through the network that the students were allowed to drink alcohol. And so um, uh, President Buswell of Wheaton College in Illinois uh, wrote a letter saying, you know, this, this can't possibly be true. Please help me dispel the rumors that <laughs> Westminster students are allowed to drink alcohol. And Nation wrote back and said, they certainly are. There's nothing creedal that forbids alcohol for us. Um, all the prohibitions on alcohol, M- Machen responded, uh, which which I, you know, personally I don't support, but I do support them in schools like Wheaton. Machen said, all those come from a sort of popular tradition about what we're, our church is about. And Westminster, in, in contrast, is only devoted to, you know, creedal absolutes, not popular or cultural assumptions. So, you know, He's like I drink. Uh, Machen said I drink. Uh, my students can drink. Um, you know we don't encourage it, but we allow it. And the implication was, <laughs> it's hard to miss. Uh, Machen's a great writer. I don't know if you've read a lot of his stuff, but definitely, uh, he wrote in this letter just this very um, <laughs> two-sided sort of uh, piece of non-advice uh, to Boswell. He said, you know, as long as you're addicted to satisfying everyone. Uh, your school can never capture uh, its real dream, which is to you know, raise a new generation of of um, conservative evangelical students it 's a, it's, it's a great interchange that helps me understand the, the the dilemma that interdenominational conservative evangelical schools faced when they were trying to uh, both be seen as you know, sort of pure. Uh, to the general evangelical public who might send their kids there or might choose not to send their kids there and the intellectuals that work in these places who said, hey, you know, this rule doesn't make any theological sense. It only makes cultural sense. The Mm -hmm. folks at Wheaton couldn't ignore the cultural stuff. They needed to kind of have a big tent conservative evangelicalism and they couldn't say, hey, guess what? Our students can, in the 30s, they couldn't say, our students can now drink alcohol. That's not a credo requirement
0: for us. Wow. that's re- it's, it's interesting to think, uh, just knowing Wheaton now and where they are, um, I just can't picture them being a fundamentalist school uh, and thinking of their, <laughs> their origins. So it's kind of shocking to me.
1: It is. And I've got to tell you, this, I think, is one of the big um, differences uh, between people who are you know, enmeshed in the world of evangelical higher education. And for people in that world, the name Wheaton often means sort of like the liberal... School, you know the sort of uh, liberal end of the spectrum for pe- other people so I when I was working at Wheaton I went to meet some old friends um, and like me they don't come from an evangelical background and so I met them for dinner and I was talking about my work at Wheaton and I, I had been in the world long enough that I said you know Wheaton you know unlike some of the fundamentalist schools and my friend interrupted me and said wait wait wait, wait whoa whoa I thought Wheaton was a fundamentalist school <laughs> and this is you know <laughs> 2015 or whatever so I think the perceptions of um, the world of evangelical higher education are very different from the inside and from the outside.
0: Another question we have for you. Uh, I know you talk about in your book early on, Bob Jones, uh, the university, or the, the, the Bible college, sorry, um, had many racial policies. And those kind of slowly uh, evolved over time. Can you kind of discuss uh, the evolution of uh, their views on race?
1: Sure, and I think it's another good case. I think a lot of people get um, angry first and thoughtful second. But I think if you examine um, the policies towards segregation at Bob Jones, and we try to keep our you know our hearts out of it for a second, I think it's another good example of the the essential institutional dilemma of interdenominational higher education when there isn't a clearly agreed upon. Um, scriptural position on something, then the schools had to scramble to figure out what their rule would be. Um, at a lot of evangelical colleges, they followed mainstream higher education in imposing racial segregation. Uh, so, for example, at, at Wheaton, as we were just talking about, Wheaton was founded in the 1800s as um, you know, an evangelical abolition school, uh, anti-racist. Uh, the first president, Jonathan Blanchard, um, you know encouraged uh, He had invited and encouraged African American students. Uh, he, he boarded them at his house, um, he encouraged um, you know, uh, interracial marriages even and this is in the 1800s. Wheaton by the 1930s had started discouraging African American students from attending. And it wasn't clear why because there's no scriptural or theological reason for it, uh, but The president at the time was addicted to the idea of making Wheaton a respectable college, not just an evangelical college. And uh, the ugly truth is that mainstream elite institutions at the time, in the 1930s, were segregated racially. And having more African American students in the 1930s was seen at places, uh, you know, mainstream elite schools, as less um, prestigious than having, you know, white students only. So Wheaton segregated in the 1930s. Um, by the 1950s and 60s, Wheaton had begun, um, joined you know, mainstream white culture, non-evangelical white culture, in um, at least tacitly supporting the Civil Rights Movement. It, at Bob Jones, the situation was very different. At Bob Jones, you had, um, since the 1930s, a single leader concept. Uh, Bob Jones Senior, and then Bob Jones Junior, and then Bob Jones the Third, at Bob Jones University, Bob Jones College, and then Bob Jones University. Uh, the answers to these tricky questions were figured out with a the leadership principle. You know, the Bob Joneses defined what was and what wasn't um, scripturally required. The trick for Bob Jones, at the Bob Jones College that is, was that in 1960, Bob Jones Senior publicly. Um, defined racial segregation as a scriptural uh, requirement. Mm. He said, you know, the famous pamphlet, Is Segregation Scriptural? Uh, Bob Jones' answer in 1960 was, yes, You know, God loves every person, of course, um, but God did not intend for the, the races to be commingled. He created them separate and wanted them to stay that way. That was the Bob Jones position in 1960. So because of the, the fragmented nature of authority at colleges. They didn't know for sure what counted as a scriptural requirement and what didn't. When Bob Jones Sr. put racial segregation into the category of a scriptural requirement the school couldn't change that. So even as other um, southern evangelical schools, like uh, most famously Liberty, um, Liberty moved away from racial segregationism in the 1970s and 1980s not as you know as fast as some of us might have liked but they did Bob Jones because it had elevated racial segregation to a scriptural rule couldn't change it as easily as other schools could
0: this topic, I know it may seem um, something kind of distant in the past, but it's kind of uh, peeking its head up again once again with uh, the kneeling down during the national anthem in the NFL and then even in evangelical cir- circles. Uh, it's kind of a hotbed issue as we speak. Uh, the MLK50 conference, uh, there were many uh, discussions on race and racism, and then uh, Together for the Gospel, which was uh, uh, this past week, had uh, 12,000 people. Um, and several of the sermons and the discussions were about race and racism. So uh, very interesting and very applicable for uh, the current culture in the church. One more question I want to ask you just out of curiosity, and you may know nothing about it whatsoever, but I'm just curious because in my hometown, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee, one of the biggest fundamental schools in the country is here, uh, Crown College or Temple Baptist Church, and they also have a seminary as well. Do you know anything about or do you have any um, stories or any uh, thing you can tell us about maybe their history? Uh, I'm not sure if you've even researched them at all. Uh, I know they're a very big school here in town and a fundamental school at that.
1: Yeah, no, I don't. In fact, I struck out again and again in your neck of the woods. I tried to get to Bryan College, and they said, no, thank you. Um, you know, Our archives aren't open. I wanted to go to Tennessee Temple, uh, but they closed, as, you, as you're probably aware yeah. Uh, and Crown, no, I don't know specifically about their story.
0: Thank you very much. I was just curious if you knew anything about them. Uh, well, we always try to toss in some fun questions for our listeners just about you, um, our interviewee, if you want to say that. Uh, so whenever you're not writing or, or researching uh, or whatever it may be, what do you do for fun?
1: Well, uh, sadly, most of it is the fun stuff is about the writing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so for me, uh, we live in a beautiful area. I love to hike. Um, And uh, I I love it for itself but I also like it because I'll write in the morning and then I'll go out with the dog into the woods and hike around for a couple hours and I'll figure out all the things that I couldn't figure out in the morning Hmm. and so then I'll run home and fix them but uh, yeah mostly being outside, being outdoors
0: So one other fun question we always try to toss in is do you have a favorite writer maybe Uh, whether it be fiction, history, whatever it may be, do you have uh, maybe a handful of writers you can share with us?
1: Sure, sure. Well, I noticed on your um, blog you just got to interview one of my um, academic heroes, George Marsden.
0: Mm, yes, um, he's very, very, very
1: good. Yeah, his book—I mean, like everybody in American culture, fundamentalism in American culture, uh, the 1980 version—that was the book um, that you know got me started in this um, in this field. Uh, the second person is uh, my uh, grad school mentor, Ron Numbers, who studies, among other things, um, creationism. Mm. So, one of the intellectual puzzles for me is how um, and one of the things that drove, drove me to this book in particular is the numbers of uh, college educated American adults who have uh, radically different ideas about you know the sort of fundamental nature of our species mm. uh, and, and how how could it be uh, The quote that I like um, the sentence that I like i should say is you know our culture war fights are usually fiercest between." Not between the sort of educated and uneducated, but they're usually fiercest between two people or between groups of people who have been educated differently.
0: That is a very good quote. Um, Speaking of fundamentalism, uh, have you read anything by D.G. Hart? Uh, I know he um, has written um, one or two books on fundamentalism and evangelicalism and, and its influence on culture. No,
1: I mean except that I admire him from afar. Uh, you know, he—I um, spent a lot of time with um, um, uh, Machen's papers, and he, of course, is the uh, the guy, uh, the the expert on um, the career of, of Machin. I, I love reading his reviews. Um, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan, but I've never met him. I'm just a, a fan from afar.
0: I know fiction is one of those things that people either hate it or love it. Uh, Sometimes people are like I don't have time for it. Uh, do you read fiction, and if so, uh, do you have maybe uh, one or two writers that you enjoy, or are you not a fiction guy at all?
1: <laughs> no, I do. I my, started my career teaching English at the middle school and high school level. I I think I I write history because it's you know um, a nonfiction version of stories that that mm. you know people can access. So I love. I mean, I love all the. I love Marilyn Robinson these days. You know, I always uh, am excited to to um, see her uh, whenever she has something new, fiction or nonfiction. Honestly, so I think she's my current favorite.
0: Are you a uh, Wendell Berry fan?
1: Oh yeah, of course. Okay. <laughs> uh, another another favorite of mine, and and one you know, I think um, Wendell Berry, Marilyn Robinson. I I think the the greatest fiction writers. Um, For me, again, it all comes back to my work sometimes, but they help me see how um, insufficient our standard, like, you know, culture war categories are, you know, progressive, conservative, uh, religious, secular. They're all, um, at best, sort of um, signals or placeholders. None of them can really get to what goes on inside.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show and uh, just sharing with us all your research. And thank, for, uh, thank you for all the time that you put in researching this topic. It certainly is very helpful.
1: Ah, well, thank you. I appreciate the call. It's been great to talk with you.